We're going to be in John chapter 12 this morning, and so if you need a Bible, if you don't have one, um, just catch the eye of one of our ushers, and they will be glad to give you one, and uh, you can take it on home with you if you need one. So, uh, but it's great to be able to open God's Word together, hold it in our own hands, and see it for ourselves, and so we're going to do that, and we're going to be looking at John chapter 12 on page 750 if you have one of these. So, let me offer a word of prayer as we get started. Father, thank you for this time in your word. I pray, speak through it to our hearts. Do what we can't do, and that is to, uh, to persuade hearts and uh, to show us what we need to do and how we need to respond to you and to your word. Uh, thank you that Jesus came, that, that, that the great I am became flesh and uh, suffered and died for us that we might come into a relationship with you, forgiven, clean, restored, and uh, just glorious in, in all of its aspects, this amazing relationship that goes on forever. And so I pray that our, our trust would be in you as we look to your word. Speak to our hearts through it in Jesus' name. Amen. Who sets the terms for the relationships in your life. All relationships uh, have terms that they operate under, so who sets those terms? Think of some of the relationships in your life. Think about, for instance, the home you grew up in. Who set the terms for what was acceptable in the home you grew up in? Uh, for me, it was mom. Mom set the terms, and uh, she had us in line pretty, pretty effectively. Uh, Mom was a nurse, and we learned the meaning of stat. Do you know what stat means? Stat means like, like now, if not sooner. This needs to be done stat. It's like, yes, ma'am, we'll, we'll do it. She set the terms for, for that household. Uh, think about significant relationships that, that you have in your life with, with other people. Um, I think about um, my, my sweetheart, uh, and I think of the terms of that relationship. We exchange vows, and, and that defines the terms of our relationship. Uh, think about uh, nations. They, they have treaties that they enter into to set the terms for their relationships with one another. And uh, often they live as close to the edge of those treaties as they can, uh, try to get away with some minor violations if they can, but those treaties set the terms. So, who sets the terms in the relationships in your life? We're going to be looking at a passage here this morning that deals with who sets the terms in a relationship with Jesus. We've seen in our study in John's gospel so far that John focuses his attention on who Jesus is. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the other gospel writers, tell us a lot more about what Jesus did. John wants to push through that and show us the significance of the things Jesus did in terms of who Jesus is. And so again and again, he has brought us to this question, who is this man? Who is this Jesus? And our passage today shows us that because of who Jesus is, he sets the terms for what a relationship with him looks like. We don't set the terms. He sets the terms. 
because of who he is. So let's take a look at the text. We're in John chapter 12. It's on page 750 in these Bibles. And we'll begin at verse 12. Verse 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now, the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. So the passage begins by telling us in verse 12 that, that a, a great crowd had gathered and went out to greet Jesus, bringing palm branches with them. And uh, you may wonder how big a crowd this great crowd is. Well, uh, Jerusalem swelled to several times its normal size during the feasts of the Jews, particularly the Passover. And Josephus, the, the Jewish historian, estimated the crowd at one time uh, at Passover, right before the Jewish wars of uh, uh, 1966. No, no. <laughs> A.D. 66 to 70 that ended in the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. He estimated a, a Passover right before that at a crowd of 2.7 million. Can, can you imagine that? A crowd of 2.7 million. Now, Josephus was generally pretty good with his numbers. But even if he was exaggerating, even if it was a crowd half that size, that is huge. Huge crowd swelling Jerusalem to several times its normal size. And our text tells us that these people heard Jesus was coming and they went out to meet him. But the text goes on to show us that they went out to meet him with the wrong idea in mind. So let's take a look at that wrong idea. This is point one if you're following in the outline. The wrong idea is this. They wanted to make Jesus what they wanted him to be. They wanted to set the terms for their relationship with him. There are a few indicators in the text. Uh, the first indicator is what they waved. They waved palm branches. Didn't wave flags, but they might just as well have. This was kind of like a flag of the revolution that, that they're waving, these, these palm branches. Palm branches were used in that day in celebrations of victory. And so if you, if you back up to 141 B.C., the Maccabean Revolt, uh, Simon Maccabeus drove the Syrian forces out of Jerusalem and was greeted with singing and palm branches. 
palm branches to celebrate the victory. And that caught on. And by the time we get to Jesus' day, palm branches became a national symbol for Israel. Even a nationalistic symbol for Israel. And the symbol was put on coins of Jewish insurrectionists um, during the Jewish war that Josephus wrote about. And the fact that people would greet Jesus with palm branches showed their hope that Jesus was going to be this great liberator they were hoping for, this political and military figure who would set them free from Roman tyranny. So what they waved spoke uh, great volumes about what their expectations were. Again, the wrong idea. They were trying to set the terms for their relationship with Jesus. But not only what they waved spoke volumes, what they said spoke volumes also. Uh, they said three things, and those three things put together really show us what they were thinking. The first two come from Psalm 118. The first thing they said was, Hosanna, Hosanna. Literal meaning, save us, save us. Now, this was a greeting that was given to people coming to Jerusalem, Hosanna. And, uh, you know, maybe it was uh, uh, cheapened somewhat by common use. But when you look at the meaning of the word and you see it in its context, you see they were greeting one they thought was going to be their liberator. Save us. Save us from what? Well, couple it with the palm branches and the nationalistic hopes for the Messiah. And what you have them hoping for here is that they, they were hoping for someone who would lead them in victory over the Romans. The next thing they said also comes from Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This was once a greeting given to uh, people coming to the festivals in Jerusalem. And in the name of the Lord, in its original setting, modified the word blessed. So blessed in the name of the Lord is the one who comes. That was the original meaning. You're coming to Jerusalem, you're blessed in the name of the Lord. By the time we get to its usage here in Jesus' day, uh, this in the name of the Lord was modifying the word comes. So it becomes, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, so what's it mean to come in the name of the Lord? Well, uh, an ancient Jewish commentary known as a midrash on Psalm 118 shows that this was interpreted in terms of what they expected the Messiah to be, a military and political figure. The one who comes in the name of the Lord will liberate us. So palm branches, save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is all kind of pointing to what their expectations would be for Jesus. And if there's any doubt remaining, that is taken away by the last thing they said, it doesn't come from Psalm 118. And they came up with this more or less on their own. And it was this, blessed is the king of Israel. They are greeting Jesus as he comes to town as, as their conquering king. In uh, John chapter 1, Jesus meets Nathanael, who becomes one of the 12. And Nathanael tells Jesus what he thinks. He says, you are the king of Israel. Jesus was, was seen then as this one who would fulfill these expectations to be their king. 
the Davidic king they'd been praying for. So the people want Jesus to be their king. And what that meant was they wanted him to be the king who would rule them in place of Rome. Now think about that for a second in terms of the size of this crowd. If Josephus is, is anywhere near right, I mean 2.7 million, cut it in half, cut it in a quarter. It's still a huge army. And to the Pharisees in verse 19, at the end of this section we're looking at, they say the whole world has gone after Jesus. They're, they're concerned what, what this might mean. This mighty army has assembled around Jesus and the crowds vastly outnumbered the Roman oppressors. What could happen? What could happen? It would be really easy for a Jew with messianic hopes to say, this is it. This is the moment we've been waiting for. This is our time. It's, it's happening. Bring on the revolution. But it was the wrong idea. The right idea comes in Jesus' response to this in verses 14 to 16. The right idea is Jesus making clear who he is and what kind of king he's going to be. He will set the terms for the relationship with him. It's a much bigger story than what they have in mind. It centers around what he did with a donkey. It says in verse 14, he found a young donkey. Now, this event, this, this getting the donkey, is recorded in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All the others give a lot of detail. John isn't interested in all the detail. John is interested in telling you what this says about who Jesus is. Again and again, we have seen John getting back to, it's all about who Jesus is. And he wants to answer in terms of the type of king Jesus will be. So he skips all the detail and he lays it out as though these people had just asked Jesus a question and now Jesus was answering it for them. And the answer that he gives to their kingly expectations for him comes out of the prophet Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9, written 500 years earlier. Here's what Zechariah 9, 9 says. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, riding, uh, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So while they were expecting this conquering king to come in on a white charger, Jesus comes in gentle and lowly on the colt of a donkey. That's the kind of king he's coming as, humble and gentle. In other words, he's not coming to be what they want him to be. He's going to set the terms. Jesus does the same thing before Pilate in John chapter 18, when Pilate says, are you king of the Jews? You are a king, aren't you? And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight. There will be no fight in establishing Jesus' kingdom. Peter will get that wrong in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is arrested. He'll take out his sword. He wants to fight, but he'll get corrected by Jesus. And Jesus uh, 
is, is doing something here that John tells us the disciples don't understand at the time. And John wants us to make sure we see the significance of this, this whole thing, the crowd's expectations and what Jesus does to answer those expectations. And so he steps back in verse 16 and gives us some perspective. Verse 16 says, says this, at first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. They didn't understand at the time. Uh, it was only later. And, and John is writing now, probably 30 years later, looking back on this and saying, yeah, we didn't understand it at the time. When was it we came to understand that? He says it was after Jesus was glorified. And so it was after Jesus was glorified that they understood that all of these things were written about him. What are these things? Well, Psalm 118, that they were quoting, uh, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Also, Zechariah 9, that Jesus was enacting. It was all written about him. And that these things were fulfilled in him. In other words, all that was written in the Old Testament points forward to Christ. The whole Old Testament anticipates him. And the whole New Testament tells us about him. John says, all this, all this points to Christ. And when did they begin to understand that it pointed to him? Only after he was glorified. In other words, after the resurrection. And I believe after the coming of the Holy Spirit. Why do I say those two things? Well, the resurrection transformed these guys. The resurrection transformed this group of people that was scared for their lives and in hiding, transformed them into a, a bold band of witnesses that would give their lives to share the gospel. And the coming of the Holy Spirit would give insight into rethinking all of their expectations for the Messiah. The Holy Spirit would walk them into that truth. All this, John says, all scripture points to Jesus. Think about a time when a couple of dejected followers of Jesus who hadn't really gotten the news yet of his resurrection were walking on Easter Sunday morning from Jerusalem to Emmaus. It's recorded for us in Luke chapter 24, starting at verse 13. Take a look at what, what Luke tells us. Now, that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. They asked him, I'm sorry, he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? 
he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they said. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. There's that expectation again. We had hoped he was going to be the one to set us free from the Romans, to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are. How slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Took him back to Moses, the author of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and the prophets. And he showed in case after case after case that these things were pointing to him. Can't you just picture the discussion? You know, Jesus lands on a passage of Scripture and says, this is what's telling you about the Messiah. This is what it says about him. They're going, oh, we missed that one. And then, another, oh, we missed that one too. Oh, how did we miss that? And Jesus just makes it all clear, showing that that applies to him. It's all fulfilled in him. More importantly, um, what's it tell us about him? When, when we read the Old Testament, we need to see that it points to Jesus. We also need to see what it tells us about him. And what's telling him, telling us about him is that the person who is offering us a relationship with God is God himself. That's been the theme of John throughout. This is God in flesh, and he is the one who is offering a relationship with God. The great I am wants a relationship with us. Near the end of John's gospel, he gives his purpose statement in John chapter 20, verse 31. He says, in fact, let me, let me, just, um, let me just read. I'm going to give you uh, verse 31 up on the screen, but let me just read 30 as well. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written. These things that I have just shared with you these past 20 chapters, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's John's purpose statement. I've written this book to show you Jesus is the Son of God and to show you that through him you can have life in his name. Now, let me just finish this off by bringing us back to the context. John uh, steps away from this perspective that he's given us in verse 16 
And he uh, tells us then in um, verses 17 through uh, 19, uh, the context that, that this is all taking place in. He says this, Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So you've got people spreading the word around Bethany, the, the town where Jesus raised Lazarus. So word is spreading there, and these people want to travel with Jesus. You've got this huge crowd in Jerusalem there for the festival coming from that way, and they're all kind of converging on Jesus. And listen to what the Pharisees say in verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. This is a powder keg ready to explode. The Pharisees see it. You got this enormous crowd surrounding Jesus with all of these expectations. You got this huge wave of public sentiment. You got the tension of this moment and their growing concern that things were building to a head and all it would take for the thing to explode is for Jesus to give the word. The people are ready to make him their king. The opposition is ready to crush him. And it's going to be one or the other very soon. So how does this apply today? It comes down, I think, to us to a single question, and that is this. Who sets the terms for your relationship with Jesus? Who sets the terms for your relationship with Jesus? We read what Jesus said to the disciples on the Emmaus Road, and we go, okay, I get it. He's the Savior. That's wonderful. We overlook the fact that he's more. As we have studied our way through the Gospel of John, we see John has gone out of his way to show us he is much more than anybody expected. This is God in flesh. This is the great I am himself. The crowds wanted to make him king. He came as savior. I think in our time, we like the savior part. We're not so fond about the king had a friend who uh, was a pretty good evangelist, at least by his own measure. He talked about the places that he shared the gospel. And I said, so what do you share when, when you go into one of these places? He said, well, what I say is this. If I could tell you how you could get to heaven and, and it would be an easy thing for you to do, would you be interested in hearing about it? I thought about that for a while. And I thought about the easy thing to do part that's either, either terribly misinformed or it is a huge bait and switch. Because for those of us who've been walking with Jesus any length of time, we know that that is not an easy road he calls us to. It's not like life becomes rosy the moment we put our trust in him. The way is hard. The, the, the gate is narrow. Uh, it, it is a difficult thing he calls us to sometimes, and yet, yet he's with us every step of the way. But it isn't easy. We like the Savior part. We're a little less comfortable with the King part. 
We receive him as Savior, and we live under his kingship. Not because we're trying to earn our way into heaven. No, we're saved by grace, not by works. But we live under his kingship as a consequence of who he is. He is the great I am. And he invites us by his grace into a relationship with him. And he sets the terms for that relationship. I heard a man speak once who, whose native country was India. And he told about how in his childhood, uh, he learned a term for his father that was used commonly. And it kind of comes into English in, in two words fit together. And first is daddy and the second is sir. That's, that's essentially what they would call their father. Daddy, sir. And he told us that one day he called his father the daddy part and left out the sir part. And his dad gave him a little slap and said, don't forget the sir. There is much more to our relationship than what you might just want it to be, is all that and more. Who sets the terms? for our relationship with Jesus. He's not just who you want him to be. He's far bigger than that. He's the great I am. When we put our trust in him, we accept him for all that he is. And we surrender our lives to him and follow. I'd like for us just to take a moment for silent prayer. When each of us can think about our response to who Jesus is, to his invitation to live in a relationship with him. And uh, let's just make sure that we're coming to him on his terms and not just on the terms of what we want him to be. So let's just spend a moment in, in silent prayer. Lord, forgive us for those times when we have tried to make you into what we want you to be and have failed to appreciate the fullness of who you really are. And I pray, Lord, that our response to you would not just be an easy believism that says, I prayed a prayer, but a life surrendered to you. Father, I pray that if there's anybody here this morning that needs to put their trust in you, that they would recognize that the offer is still there, that you still offer a relationship with you through Jesus, who came as Savior and who lives as Lord. And I pray that our response to you would be wholehearted and unhesitating, and that we would give our lives to the one who gave himself for us in his name. Amen.